Welcome to Far Realms Radio, our podcast of many things. Where we offer you some eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. And then stop in the tavern for some talk about a brew that we like this week. What we like, what we don't like, we'll tell you a little bit about it. Let's get to it. Welcome to episode one. What is D&D? So today we're going to cover what is D&D, the eternal question. We're going to go over a little bit of history behind the game. We're going to talk about what you need to play the game. And we're going to talk about how the game is currently changing in the, the modern gaming landscape. I also think it's worth talking about the why of the game here. But let's talk about sort of the mechanics first. What is D&D? Uh, I don't know. You want me to go first or you want to go first? Well, if someone with zero knowledge of the game came up to you and asked you, what is D&D? How would you respond? Because I find a lot of us experienced players get this question and we all pause and we're like, uh, uh, how do I explain this to you? You have no knowledge of this. How do I explain this without sounding like a crazy person? I do definitely pause when somebody asks me that game. And it really depends upon the person that's asking it, I think. You know, I, I, I read them, which tells you something about, I guess, what where this game lives for me. You know, it's like, they go, what is D&D? And I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't know. It's a role-playing game. You know, and then I see how that lands. Because if I say it's a role-playing game, they're going to take it one of two directions. They'd be like, "Oh, is that like a Final Fantasy game?" Or they'd be like, "Oh, so you're into kink? Do you have? Is there a safe word I should know?" <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, "No, I, it's it's like a tabletop role-playing game." I had one person who was like, "So you want me to lie on a table?" No, 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 not not that kind of. Anyway, uh, I think it's a, it's a role-playing game, and and when they ask the next inevitable question of what does that mean is like is it like blankety to blank i'll usually say it's a shared imagination experience you you get together and you play a game kind of like a board game but as free form as you want so it's not necessarily like a board game but it's a maybe collaborative problem solving is another thing i've also described it as. i think that's actually a pretty good way to describe the game because it's really a series of difficulty checks and overcoming challenges with dice if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of the mechanics i think i have the same approach when talking to people who don't know the game because their own history with games really affects how well they're going to understand it if i'm talking to someone who has played a lot of role-playing video games i can tell them it's like a skyrim board game with other people and that will kind of click for them and they have a slight idea a better idea of what that might be so that question it can be kind of a loaded question because it kind of depends what what is their knowledge of these terms that we're using. So if someone comes up to me and I'm trying to explain to them what Dungeons & Dragons is like at a party or something, and I tell them it's a tabletop role-playing game, that may mean nothing to them if they don't know what those terms are. So I'll usually explain, it's kind of like a board game you play with pen and paper and multiple-sided die. And players assume the role of adventurers in order to explore the collectively imagined world, overcome challenges, and there's a really strong focus on fighting monsters. Yeah, and this is something I think that's been debated a lot over the years about what what is the core thing behind D&D? Is it the fighting of the monsters? Is it the shared imagination? Is it the storytelling together? Is it problem solving? What is it? You know, the, the, the most meaty part of it. I think it's actually none of those things. Okay. What, what would you describe it as? Because there's often a big debate about how much of the game is a collaborative storytelling game, or is it a war game, or is it a, it's really kind of combination of those things. How would, what's your take on that philosophical debate I mean, people love to have. I wish I could say, I mean, in my, in my heart of hearts, I want to say it's a an exercise in shared imagination that allows us to change ourselves and grow and learn about each other in the world. And and that's a nice idea, but it's just in my heart of hearts. And in, in reality, how I think about the game is it's the experience table. It's just the levels that you get. The game is a means by which to progress through levels, to gain experience. And that is 
is the most compelling and I think core part to any kind of role-playing game, especially D&D. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just experience. That's a really good, easy one to understand. It's a good example. progression. Progression of some kind over time. Right. Some kind of growth, some kind of of change. Growth from overcoming those challenges. I mean, and I have a whole riff I could go off on a terror and a big old soapbox about the nature of story and how we project onto stories and yada, yada, yada. I won't do that here. I can as well, because I'm one of those players who feels like describing the game as a collaborative storytelling game to someone may be the best way for them to understand what you're talking about. But I don't think it is the most accurate description of Dungeons and Dragons as a whole. Uh, I think it is more really a game that is about rolling dice and killing monsters. And the story is kind of a byproduct of these mechanics. You could sit down and play a game with and not ascribe any narrative to it. And you could still work through those mechanics and have a battle. It would probably not be very entertaining. Um, But I think the narrative is something that we kind of have to, as players, ascribe ourselves to those actions that we take in the game. And that's why you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, no, the storytelling doesn't happen at the table. It happens later when we recall what we did at the table, because when we were there, that's when we were creating that narrative on the spot. See, I think that it only gets to conflict as the most common way by which to resolve a story. And I say that because... D&D presents a safe space in which to solve a problem, tell a story, have a fight, whatever, progress, that we don't get anywhere else. We get something close to it in a lot of video games. You can get something kind of analogous to it in a book or a movie. But what's interesting about it and why I think it focuses on combat, on battle, and fighting monsters is because it's a life or death challenge. So there are stakes automatically yeah, out of the gate. Stakes. Dramatic narrative. You know, it's it's very powerful for that. But also, it's very easy to understand. Like, I'm going to try and kill the, the thing. And he's going to try and kill me with his orc sword, you know? And uh, the there are a lot of rules to support that because it, it's a difficult thing to adjudicate. It's easy to determine, like, did you convince her to let you buy a drink at the bar in a role-playing game, but it's harder to narrate your way through the grit and grime of a fight with somebody who's trying to stab you in the eyes, let alone a cosmic horror from beyond the stars, you know? I agree. I think really when you break the game down to its most base form, it's risk versus reward, right? It's gambling. You're rolling dice. It's kind of gambling. Uh, You're gambling against, you know, these modifiers and these difficulty checks, and... Most games kind of boil down to this risk-reward paradigm. Like in role, many role-playing games that are video games, you know, you're like, oh, I could go fight that monster that's a higher level than me. And man, I might it might be tough and I might die, but if I win, I'm going to get way more experience because it is such a higher level than me. And there's that risk-reward mm-hmm. paradigm there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the game is mostly rolling dice. And I think the reason it's so hard to pin Dungeons and Dragons down is because it is kind of an amalgamation of all these different role-playing games that have kind of come together and you get different aspects of each because when we look at just what is a role-playing game, right? Like definition, like we have to have some working definitions to talk about this or due to semantics, we may be talking about completely different things. And that's why a lot of people avoid this discussion or argument and they hand wave it away as just semantics. It doesn't matter, but semantics does matter because that's how we, Communicate. I mean, words shape what we can think about, right? right? Like, so like a role-playing game is simply a game in which the players assume the role of characters in some fictional setting. That's it. Like you're assuming the role of someone, someone in a fictional setting. Like usually, you know, when you do this, you have the responsibility to act the role out in a narrative. It's usually not just like, you know, you're plopped into a simulator. There's usually some some narrative that you're working through with that role play, right? Like the actions taken then also have some, usually a formal system like you were saying, right? Like, because it's easy to set up what are the risks of the situation? What are the rewards, right? Like you can figure those out. Like, oh, I may have a better chance of stabbing the dragon if I run forward, but that also puts me within melee range, right? So you have that risk reward. It's usually pretty clear what the stakes are. Um, The hard part is, like you said, it's adjudicating those stakes and making sure that there's some systematic way to work that out. Because yeah. otherwise you get that kid who's like, you didn't shoot me. I have my bulletproof vest on today. And it's like, well, right. maybe I shot you with a bazooka and then all of a sudden he can fly. I mean, that's the same thing as on the playground, right? Like where one kid's like, I have superpowers. I blast you with energy blaster playing pretend. And another kid is like, well, I 
have immunity to energy blasts because <clears throat> we're playing pretend. And how do you adjudicate? And as adults, we'd like to think that we'd be better at that. But at the end of the day, really, it's the same. So one of the classic debates, I guess, in this what is role-playing is, are we talking about, and this is the age-old one, role-play R-O-L-E or role-play R-O-L-L? The right? classic debate. I mean, you brought up gambling earlier, and the game is very much that. But I think that if we think of the game as some kind of gambling when you toss dice, that you have to think about the experience of tossing the die. And I think that the, the, the crux of that, the game designers talk about this in 5th edition in particular, really revolves around the D20. You know, So yes, there's gambling, but they focused it really around what die you roll and why it feels good to do certain... I mean, D10 systems like White Wolf often they're like, yeah, we want to give you as many D10s as you can. Roll as much dice as you can. Because people like to just With toss all fate those. Fate and D6. Right. Fate has its four, you know. Yeah, yeah. But D20 is still that classic. Like, here is your one. Here's your gamble. Here's how the game works. Roll it and see if it works. Uh, yeah, it's iconic to the point where the D20 is often the symbol for the game. Um, and I think, Absolutely. right, I think the other thing that's important when we're talking about role-playing versus a storytelling is a storytelling game is a game where two or more people usually collaborate together spontaneously in a story of some kind. And usually you see aspects of this within modern role-playing games. They kind of cross over a lot. In Dungeons and Dragons, you have people usually take on one character, sometimes more. You have the the DM takes control of all these supporting characters and all these non-character forces, like the weather, the political systems in the world, whatever. All of the world-building bits that you have. And the funny thing is, where one of the reasons I think we get so confused when we're trying to differentiate between a role-playing game and a storytelling game is the most popular modern storytelling games we play all kind of evolved out of role-playing games, the ones that we play today, where essentially they were like, how can we de-emphasize these random number generators like the dice and these rules and make it a little bit more freeform? And so it kind of comes down to... Do you mean like RPGs evolved out of tabletop RPGs or tabletop RPGs evolved out of these old war games? So storytelling games, like RPGs that call themselves storytelling games or storytelling RPG. Like Fate. Like Fate, sure. These games actually really evolved out of a subgenre of role-playing games, right? They looked at games like Dungeons and Dragons and they said, how can we make this more about collaborative storytelling? Right. Well, we have to take out that random number generator, the dice, or we have to make the rules a little looser so there's more space for interpretation. And I think a really good example is like in Dungeons and Dragons, if I'm going to run and jump over a ledge, I'm going to have to roll a dice and check and whatnot and see if I can beat, you know, meet the system's requirements for doing that. Where if we're playing a storytelling game, all I really need to do is give a really good believable reason or description that meets the what the other players are looking for is acceptable or reasonable, kind of based on my character and their abilities. Well, I think that D&D actually supports both of those things. And I think that there is definitely a part of the game that is the, I try to jump over the wall, do I succeed or fail? I try to pick the lock, do I succeed or fail? And there's another part of it that assumes automatic success unless there's some kind of risk or threat, some cost if you fail. And... I don't know where the idea of roll to see if you can comes from. Maybe it's from just naive thinking about the system. I don't think it was ever explicitly said. Maybe I'm wrong, but I have never seen it in any of the books that a player wants to do X, Y, or Z. They have to roll to do it. You know, And there's the classic examples of, do I have to roll to buy a drink at the bar? Do I have to roll to open the door? Do I have to roll to pick up my bag or whatever, you know? I want to try to pick the lock on the door, and I don't succeed. And there's no cost for failure. It was not part of the plot or whatever. So, you know, should I have even rolled in the first place, or should the GM have just given it to me and whatever that was behind that door, or just said, you fail, it's not not worth it? Well, I'm of the idea that you they probably shouldn't have had you roll in the first place. A lot of the designers I've seen and people who've played the games often, why have somebody roll if there's no consequence, right? Because then it's like, well... exactly can I just take 20 and sit here and do it again and do it again and do it again? And you could do things like, you know, roll on a rent wandering monster table as the GM. It's kind of, 
up to you to create that consequence because otherwise you're having people roll for no reason. You're bringing in that random number generator when you don't need it. If your character is a rogue and you think they can just role play through it, that's totally possible. But I think that's the thing and that's why it gets confusing, right? Because D&D is so malleable in that regard and you can push it in either direction, right? You can push it more to this collaborative storytelling side of things and take out more dice rolls. And you will always have those players who are like, oh, we didn't roll a dice the whole night. It was awesome. And then you're going to have the other players who that is their worst nightmare in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. They, they don't want that amount of freedom because it's hard, right? When you have that amount of freedom, maybe you need to police yourself a little bit more about not being ridiculous or it's more work for the DM because people are trying to do crazy things. It really just depends. Um, I really don't mind using the random number generators a little bit just because I feel like players already have enough tools to mess around with a narrative as it is. I think this really comes to the why of the game. And I think that's this is the why the game, and not just D&D, but role-playing games generally, and D&D as one of the most accessible ones of them, widespread all around the world, is it supports different styles of play which is why I call it a collaborative role-playing game. And I don't usually tell them if I'm saying R-O-L-E or R-O-L-L. I'll just say collaborative role-playing. You know, you're not usually writing it down. Uh, but that encompasses, or it's meant to when I say it, both. Because it supports the crunch, and it supports the story, and it supports the acting, and it supports the whatever different kinds of things that every different kind of player wants. And getting those different desires all at a table together all to play a game together, each with their own different play style, that's the magic. That's the part that I think makes this game so special is because you get to show up like you want and you get to play the game that you want as long as you can share it with others. I agree. I think when you look at Dungeons and Dragons, you find a lot more range than you would with a game like Call of Cthulhu or oh, definitely. other table. Warhammer fantasy roleplay, even Fate, which is can do anything. But I feel... Dungeons and Dragons is so dominant in the role-playing market, not only because it's been around so long, but because it has the ability to cater to so many different types of players within their desires. I think the game is a very simple game to understand at its core. You know, you have, and this is why 5th edition is successful, I think, in, in large part. You have one die, a d20. It's very simple. You roll it, you add something to it, did you pass or fail, whatever the thing is you need to do. It's like simple stats, and you can make it more complicated with additional rules. You can make it less complicated with less classes or whatever. You know, It's very easy to tune it around. Yeah, I think that's actually a great way of breaking down the game. It's really you're rolling dice, you're adding modifiers, and seeing if you met a certain number. And we ascribe you know, our narrative around that, and that's just kind of a little bit of bringing the real world and random happenstance into the game. I think another place that the confusion comes from is you'll have so many role-playing games that describe themselves as storytelling games, but they're still using a ton of like randomized things, whether it be cards or decks or some other form of random number generator. Um, and, you know, you have a lot of storytelling games that end up just being streamlined forms of role-playing games because they've taken out some of the crunch and you can get through it quicker. Uh, but in the same vein of that, if you look at games like Dungeons and Dragons itself, which claims to be, you know, a modern role-playing game, there is plenty of places in those books where they're like, ah, just hand rape the rules. You can ignore them if you're making the storytelling more enjoyable. Like, don't get too caught up in the crunch. And it's been funny to see D&D take the swing back from 4th edition, which felt honestly more like a computer game, back towards this, this more freeform storytelling kind of narrative approach that we're so familiar with in modern five ed fifth edition. So I think we should talk a little bit about the history of role-playing games aside from D&D, both D&D and its roots in the 70s, like you mentioned a little bit ago, and where it goes back all the way to its, its ancient, ancient origins. Yes. Right? Well, role-playing games themselves go way back. But then also how it bifurcated, because when it started in the 70s as really a kind of thing, its own thing. Then people ran with it, and they came up with a whole bunch of other systems and settings and all kinds of stuff, many of which have died gloriously over the decades. Or with a whimper. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be playing uh, Tunnels and Trolls right now. 
So you know, the first thing that I heard about is from D&D. There's the classic story. It's the original role-playing game, you know, and that's that was marketing material for a long time. It still is the world's greatest role-playing game. They changed it to the world's greatest role-playing game because they couldn't call it the world's first role-playing game because other companies were like, uh-uh, we found that you're not neener neener, and they couldn't call it the world's best role-playing game because best by what metric? They it was a period in time in fourth edition. They weren't selling a lot of books, so it wasn't really the best uh. anything. So, uh, but the first time I heard about it as a thing was that it came out in 1974 from Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax, right? OG. Yep. And it came out of this game, Chainmail, this this war game that they were playing. Uh, and uh, my understanding of, of tabletop war games like that were that they were another kind of reenactment. So I grew up on the East Coast, and there's a lot of Civil War reenactment there, and it's a thing that people do. You know, they get together on a Saturday and they go out to Antietam or Gettysburg and they dress up in costumes and they pretend to kill each other. And it takes all day. And they have cannons that go off. The cannons are pretty cool. I'll give them that cre- that credit. You got to give them the cannons. And they get like weird General Burnside's beards and odd mustaches. It's dedication, man. And, it takes, oh, they are takes time. so dedicated. A lot of people build their year around it. And I mean, Williamsburg makes a living off of it. People are reenactors for livings. We have some of that out here in the West Coast, but not nearly as much. Uh, and so well, we have Comic Con, so we do, we do, and yeah, Dragon Con, Comic, all kinds of cons, <laughs> not just the convention type. <laughs> uh, but the miniature war games on a table were a reenactment as well. You know, it was a way to visualize the Battle of Gettysburg, for instance, to see what it looked like, because we had these reports from these Civil War battles that they were just difficult to visualize for the scale of them, for the brutality of them, for the decimation of, wow, thousands of troops died in this battle. Well, like... How do you visualize that? Right, like thousands of troops. So that means like columns, and they'd line them up, and then they'd have to play it out. You see. didn't have like sweet CGI battle scenes back then, or anything aerial. Right, there wasn't like there weren't, weren't airplanes. flying drones over. No, certainly no cameras or anything like that. You know, you wanted to get a view of the battle. Like, you had to have a tower. Like your uh, paintings were and illustrations were some of your best bets for visualizing this stuff. Or maybe a balloon, but now you're in a balloon floating over the battle, and you go and get shot. Yeah, it's probably not a good target to put up. No. Yeah, exactly. War games is kind of where D&D came from, and by definition, it's exactly what you said. It's just an attempt to realistically represent warfare, usually in a historical narrative sense, right? You see a lot of Napoleonic ones, you see a lot of Civil War, um, even World War One and Two are very popular reenactments throughout all of Europe. Mm-hmm. Though the guys who reenact the Nazis seem a little too excited to do it, and it's a little creepy, but that's yeah. a story for another day. yeah. So these early war games, like they are, they go all the way back in the form that we know a war game, like on a tabletop with a grid of some kind or some kind of chess pieces or what have you. It goes all the way back to Prussia in the 1800s. And you had a war game back then that was very popular and it literally evolved from there. War games have been around ever since. I'm sure if we look at other cultures around the world, we may find other variations, possibly even earlier Uh, It just depends what you classify as a war game. Yeah, I mean, there was a war game. You you could call diplomacy or some of these other like social games kind of war games. And chess is one of the original war games too. You know, these war games came out of chess essentially. It's basically an exercise on getting into the head of your opponent. That was why we played chess, so you could understand thinking and strategy, and also how to think ahead of somebody else. Uh, which I like to draw the parallel that getting into the head of somebody else is totally what D and D is all about. But well, it's role playing. That's maybe what you're not doing. to kill them. Maybe to kill them. Maybe not to kill them. Maybe I don't know. Maybe whatever you want. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of understand where the game come from if you're trying to really understand why does it have these components. And when we look at D and D, because of where it came from, war games. There's a there's this unspoken rule that the game uses a grid. If you look at most of the editions, it doesn't tell you that you have to use a grid. If you look at fourth edition, it will explicitly tell you, you that must. you should use a grid. They dedicate now, chapters to it. You don't have to use a grid in fifth edition. Good luck with that. Or you can use a different kind of grid. I mean, you could go theater of the mind. You could, and they talk about that. And there are some games that are really easy to do that with. The system supports you really well. D&D is not one of them. 
it likes its five foot squares, and that's okay. It does, and I- I'm interested. I've never actually tried it with hexes. It might be kind of fun one time, but the game is so built around like a, a rectilinear grid. It is, it is, and then you get into the whole Euclidean versus non-Euclidean math, and some people really get into that. Some people will actually use hexes and kind of change the math for things to make it work. And I get the appeal with hexes, having played plenty of strategy games that use mm-hmm. grids versus hexes, and I think hexes do provide a little bit more of a natural representation of both terrain and movement and things like that, but it's clearly the math is more complicated because you're making the geometry more complicated at that point. It might be easier, it just really depends how you set up that system mathematically. But I think it's important to understand a lot of new players come in and they think theater of the mind is how it's always been, or they don't understand that miniatures were a part of the game before the game was a game. Mm-hmm. Um, Chainmail, the game, was uh, created by Jeff Perrin, and Gary Gygax expanded on those rules, and it, that's part of what got him working with Dave Arneson on creating, quote-unquote, the fantasy game, which evolved into mm-hmm. Dungeons & Dragons as we right. played today. Right. So when I hear players talk about miniatures being this extra thing, to Dungeons and Dragons, I'm like, no, it's a core thing. That's why a lot of older players hold on to that so tightly. You don't need it. You don't need miniatures. They can be expensive. You can totally play without them. Right. But there's a reason people have an attachment to this because of the game's history and where it came from. And I myself, I don't want to play. I I want a grid. I want miniatures <laughs> and I want a grid. I want. I need to be able to visualize what's going on. Yeah. Now, I, theater of the mind can be awesome if you have someone who can run it, and you are pretty good at running theater of the mind. That's generous, thank you. But here's the thing: when you have a table of a lot of players and you're like got six players fighting twelve goblins, it's really, really difficult for most people to organize that spatially in their head. Yeah. And then you have the player who's the monk. That's me. Who's like, oh, all my movement features are kind of useless because movement here is so loose and we're not using the rules much. Plus also try to adjudicate, hey, I'm the wizard and I'm going to cast a fireball. Oh, well, the fighter is somewhere in there. Oh, he totally didn't hit the fighter. It's you, The way you described it, but he was totally where, out of the blast radius. You know? I mean, and this is the very reason why rogues eventually got things like uncanny evasion so that you just didn't have to worry about it. The wizards could <laughs> be like, killing blam, rogue. blam, and the rogue's like, whatever, I'll just dodge it again. <laughs> right. Because otherwise, those thieves, thieves were going down. Yeah. They were thieves back then. But yeah, the, oh, that's it's true. important. I forgot about that. Right? Yeah, they, yeah, they were thieves. thieves. <laughs> they weren't rogues yet. There's they were no just rogue. little thieves. They were going down, biting the dust. Part of understanding Dungeons and Dragons, once you're playing it, not if you're a new player, you're kind of like, why are things this way? Is if you look at the history, you see, like, we. The magic system in Dungeons and Dragons is often called the Vancean magic because it comes from Jack Vance's novels, the Dying Earth series. I really don't like the Vancean system. A lot of people don't, and it still gets tons of flack to this day, but we still use it. We do. Right? And if we look at the original alignment system, that came from a novel. It was called Three Hearts and Three Lines by Paul Anderson. It's important to understand what is essentially referred to as the appendix end of the game. What inspired this game? You can talk about like one of the things that people really touch touch on as a, a, a key part of the appendix end for most D D is Lord of the Rings. You know, and it's your canonical example, especially in today's world with all of the big movies that we've had, where you can see what elves look like and dwarves look like and how they are, and it's very captivating. Uh, but there are a lot of other things out there too, and Robert E. Howard's Conan stories are often cited. Um but there are other other models that people use too, and I think the Appendix N came with one of the early editions, and it was such a great idea, and it represented films and novels that were common language that players could consume to know what the game would feel like. So essentially, if you don't know what an Appendix N is, it is where the creators and authors of the game were like, hey... These are the things that inspired me to create this game. Right. So if you're trying to understand where I'm coming from or understand the flavor or theme or the melo here, check these sources out. Right. Yeah, here's a here's an example of, and sometimes they'll even break it up into, here's an example of the kind of role play situation we like, and they'll give you a maybe a... Uh, what would be a good example for today's world? We're going to have the kind of politics like you'd see on Game of Thrones. Exactly. And uh, when we talk about battle, they might say instead, but it's going to be in an asian theme setting and we're going to be more like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So imagine Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with the politics and backstabbing of Game of Thrones, and now you've started your Appendix N. And maybe we have some other, but with laser guns. So also uh, Star Wars. Exactly. You want to use... 
when trying to explain the game, it's great to use things that the people you're talking to already know and understand. Like if you're talking about like zombies, for example, they know what a zombie is. You don't need to explain that. There's this idea, there's shared cultural notion of what a zombie is, right? Mm, right. And so we have that with a lot of things. And like Lord of the Rings, I think, is a great example. That's one of the classic examples that we use to explain to people what Dungeons and Dragons is because the high fantasy setting of Lord of the Rings and most of Tolkien's work is so analogous to what we have as the default non-setting in Dungeons and Dragons, which is this medieval high fantasy setting. One of the things that I strongly encourage people who are new to the game to do is to, A, go read up on what an Appendix N is on the internets because it's good, but also, B, especially if they're considering playing a game, trying to explain the idea in their head, if they're going to run the game especially, is difficult to other players when you're new. So generating your own Appendix N. I want this to feel like Final Fantasy VII. I want this to feel like a mixture of Final Fantasy VII with X-Men. But this particular brand of X-Men, I want uh, the Chris, one... Chris Claremont's X-Men. Or what was it, Age of Apocalypse. You know, something like that. So The glam rock one. But the and just to give people <laughs> just to give people some kind of way to latch into it, to hook into it so that they, they know. The the trade-off and the lament I often have is that like I have a very clear idea. Here's my appendix N. And what it ends up being more often than not is like I can see where people are have similar interest and where they don't. They don't actually go and get the things that they're not interested in because they're not interested in them. They haven't then, they're probably not gonna be now. So, you know, it's it's useful, but it's not a panacea. It's it's just one piece of it. But it does help coalesce, more importantly, I think, in the player's mind what the game is. I think for a player, it can be helpful for a game master to be like, hey, you can check these things out. This is my appendix end for this campaign. I mean, the, the, the I was thinking of the DM as the player. Well, yeah, case, for a right? DM, it's So they totally. can articulate it. For, exactly. For a DM, I think having some idea, if you're putting together a campaign that's not pre-made, if you give them something that they can watch or connect with culture and be like, this is what I'm going for in my game, it's going to help your players a lot more. And if you're a player, that really just helps you be like, oh, okay, cool. I know what world I'm going to have to build this character for. Well, anything else you want to cover or should we stop for a drink? You know, I'm feeling a little parched. I think it's time to stop into the tavern for some tavern talk. I, th- I think we should grab a brew. Welcome to Tavern Talk, where we review a beer, talk about what we like, what we dislike, maybe a little bit of trivia, and give it a rating. And then we'll talk about a promo. Yes, and today we are drinking Prismatic, a juicy IPA by Ninkasi Brewing Company. So I have to be totally straight about this. I bought this one. This is your fun trivia. I don't know any trivia, but I bought it because the title is Prismatic, and it reminds me of Prismatic Spray, which is my favorite spell of all the spells. That's a good enough reason for me. So there we have it. It's not too bad for an IPA. It's a little on the fruitier side. Yeah, Pineapple, guava fruit, all that stuff on the label. I guess that's why they call it a juicy IPA? It's, It's this new thing with IPAs, like just inject as much fruit into it as you can. Which I think does a service to the IPA world generally. I like this one. I think it's easy, but it's also, I don't know that I it stands out in any dramatic way compared to other IPAs. It doesn't super stand out, and I, I really don't need too much fruit in my beer, but this one's pretty good. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, mostly I bought it because, like I said... Because pr- prismatic spray. Right, and if you make me laugh, I'll give you a prismatic spray while I'm drinking it. That was a good one. Ah, ah, ah. What do you like about it? It's very drinkable for an IPA. It's not too bitter. The one thing that uh, the little fruit edition there does is kind of take the uh, the edge off the hops at the the end of the beer. What do you dislike about it? Too much fruit. <laughs> I, I don't need that much pineapple in my beer. I, it's not a pina colada. So our promo for anybody listening, if you share our show, we'll enter you into a raffle that we're having over the next eight weeks. For, yeah, for the first eight weeks of the podcast, we will be setting up someone to win the holy trinity of Dungeons & Dragons, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and our favorite... The Monster Manual. Dun, dun, dun. It's the best one. So if we get just some kind of proof of you sharing the show, whether it be reaching us out on Twitter, I think that's called a tweet, (laughs) or if you just shoot us an email of proof of you 
sharing the show. You can reach us at farrealmsradio at gmail.com. You can tweet us at farrealmsradio on Twitter. And you can also reach us on Instagram at farrealmsradio. We'd love to have you share it around, and we would love for you to have these pristine, excellent core rule books for your table. I mean, it's nice having the PDFs, but nothing beats the books. I really think that's true. So yeah, like I said, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, both at the Far Realms Radio. And I think that's it for our Tavern Talk. Aside from a toast to our listeners, cheers. Cheers. Good luck. Back to the show. So, are you ready to go talk about logistics? I think we should. <clears throat> what do you actually need to play the game? So, what do you need to play the game? I feel like you could do D&D pretty minimalist. The You could go more minimalist the more experience you have. I know you could very well sit down with maybe like a dice number random generator on your phone and run people through a game with nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I know I, you could do that. I've done stuff like that before. I've actually... Dice are hard to transport, just as an interesting note. If you're going to run the minimal style, like, you know, maybe take cards or something. There, there, was a, there are all different kinds of ways to randomly to randomize what you're going to do. But let's say that you're going to run a game, and uh, you have the minimum amount that you need to. Maybe it's for a convention. Maybe it's something really low stakes, right? The minimum amount. And maybe you're even doing the minimum possible adventure, orc and pie. You know this adventure, right? You go into the room. Yes. There's an orc. It has a pie. You want to get the pie, it's just a small room, that's it. That's the whole adventure. What do you do? Right. What do you need to run the game? It's different every time, too. Well, so what do you bring to the table? Like, what is it, what are the, so, some of the, the things that you can't, you can't run it without? That you're like, I need this game to work, and so I need this thing. I'm not good with minimalists, because I'm one of those DMs <laughs> who likes to over-prep. It's fun for me, but I also... I, Toys are fun. Doing the prep helps me with like the kind of the anxiety of like running a game because it's a lot of people staring at you for multiple hours. And for me, I like to have kind of a skeleton plan. But really, to play the game at the base level, you need players somewhere between usually like 1 and 12. Um, you can run D&D by yourself. I've done it many times, sadly. I've actually um, never done that. And it's... It's not as fun as you think it would be. And there are actually a couple supplemental uh, resources out there for running games on your own. And some of them are pretty good, but it kind of just feels like a choose-your-own-adventure novel dressed up with some dice. Yeah. Right? And you can run D&D with just one person, one DM, and one player, and it can be awesome. I think that is something that people don't realize. Like, you can run a really fun game that way, and it can be awesome. I've done it before many times. Um, but generally, most people perform like prefer four to six players that tends to be the kind of the sweet spot i find yeah, yeah. i personally kind of cap myself at seven but i've seen tables run up to 11 or 12 and do okay i think the minimum amount i would need to run a game is if i'm going to feel comfortable about it i don't like to run it without a die i i, I want to die because for me this is i guess part of the gambling i want the satisfaction of tossing a d20 i think that if I can just toss it, the, it's like I am how I imagine it is throwing bones in an alley or shooting craps, you know? It's like... It I makes wanna, it real. It, it feels good. It just feels good to throw that D20 and have it go clack, 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 clack across a table or a floor or whatever. But yeah, yeah, players, you need probably some kind of players. For me, like, I'm not going to run a game unless I have at least one or two that are into it and I have to have an idea. So, you know, that's uh, sort of the minimal, but... I almost never do that because why? I mean, it's so easy to get. If you're going to buy dice, you may as well have the whole set, right? I would agree. That's kind of the right idea. And also, I'm kind of lazy about certain things. Like, I don't... We talked a little bit about this before, but I'm going to go get a book that has probably the whole... I'm going to go buy some content. And we're going to go through the content, the published content, because they, they have it. They made it. They said, this is something you should try. It's going to be fun. You should give it a go. And I'm like, all right, great. Then let's see how we can bring it to life for ourselves, you know, and explore the depth of what this content has so that we don't have to, maybe it's just a factor of time. Because if I had the time, maybe I would create a whole, I mean, I definitely have done that before. I still have maps on my shelves, maps and maps and campaign journals, but... Nowadays, it's like, all right, 
can I get somebody else to do that for me? Even if it's like, oh, we're in the Forgotten Realms again. That's fine. Well, I'm fine with that. I, I'm i a working adult. I don't have as much time to sit down and right. do as much world building and complicated, complicated campaign building as I used to. So I really do, like you said, though, I love to take an adventure that's already written and how can I make it my own? How can I change it and warp it so it fits perfectly into what I want it to do? And it's funny because when you first start, like when you first start looking at pre-made adventures, you remember when you were like so afraid to change anything and you're like, oh, no, we got it. This is how it's written. This is how we got to do it. And after you do that, you're like, nah, like, right. I'm taking this monster out. Right. We're changing this encounter. Add some uh, loot here. No way they're getting around. that magic item. Fuck that. I'm taking that right. out. Boots of flying at level three. What is this? Of course, you need the books or the rules. That's kind of the main mm-hmm. thing that they sell for this game. So mm-hmm. uh, the nice thing, though, is digitally now, it is it is awesome to be able to push control F and oh, find totally. things in a searchable PDF. Totally. Which, on your phone, oh, even. It's so fast. You can look up a spell on your phone so much faster than you used to be able to like flip through the book. And we all know the uh, index in the 5e books are probably not the strongest part of that book's there's parts of the index which refer you to other parts of the index, yeah, which is not helpful. This is something that Wizards hasn't really ever done, I would say, satisfactorily, in my opinion, or TSR. I agree. But Paizo did better. It's still, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a, I don't know. When your book is a lot of random tables, I feel like, yeah, it's kind of hard to write an index sometimes, but Paizo has done a much better job than Wizards has. With I those. will say that 5e has the best index of the editions I've seen, which doesn't make it good. It's just the least bad. It's, yeah, searching on the internet is mostly going to be faster. So some form of having those rules available to you. Some people do not like electronic devices at the table, and I understand that. I, myself, as a GM, do use a laptop off to the side because it's, it's just so convenient and it makes it faster. Anything I can do to make the game pacing better, like, I will probably do it. So I think that the next thing maybe we should talk about is the different ways that you can get it delivered today, that you can access it. And there's tabletop, but one of the things that I saw come to the fore that is great and uh, didn't ever foresee, in, in, except in my wildest dreams as a kid, was virtual tabletops. And how they build into the virtual tabletop all the different ways to make the game accessible, both on your phone, where you can roll your dice there, or chat, or with an iPad, or on your computer, with 3D dice that roll across the screen, and automatic character generator calculators, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And it changes a lot of the game, because previously, with a module, let's say I go buy an adventure module, some off-the-shelf content, and I'm going to run a game, and I'm, there's like some cool art in the book because it's inspiring me as the DM to find a way to tell the players what's so awesome about that, this bad guy. And maybe I'll show them the picture, I'll hold up the book and show it around, but hide the stat block. Well, Always hide the stat block. Right. With a, with a virtual tabletop, I can just grab the art, and I can just show them the art, and they can zoom in and look at stuff and ask questions and use it as a reference. That's one of my favorite things. super useful. So they can come back to it later and be like, I'll be like, listen, you run into this John, John, Billy, Joe, the hillbilly farmer dude. And they're like, which guy is that? We've been talking to a lot of hillbillies. I'm like, well, they go over to their screen with all of the art, and they go, that one. They can find him very easily. The so, guy with the mustache. Right. It makes it very easy for them. I love that because I, it's the same thing. You're like holding up the book, trying to show all these people around the table. Like, yeah, it's this. See this guy? And the nice thing about having a virtual tabletop like Roll20 or Fantasy Rounds or whatever is you can just have that image pop up. And you can dramatically time it in a way that you can't at the table mm. because at the table, you hold it up and you have to pan it around. And someone's like craning their neck. Not everyone sees it. Like, boom. When you do it on Roll20, for example, it's instant and it pops up and it's like, whoa. And you can use that to kind of pace your narrative or your storytelling a little bit more. And to build on that, the other thing that I love when you buy a completed adventure, all the maps are done for you, mm-hmm. and that's great. But the maps are in the book. Mm-hmm. You usually don't get like mm-hmm. a separate printed out sheet of maps. And so you're still stuck drawing that shit on a grid or right. on a, some form of paper or printing them out. And that is one of the nicest things about a virtual tabletop is, oh, look, all the maps are in there. All the creatures are placed right. on the map. Maybe the dynamic lighting kind of thing is already on the map, which means it's doing fog of war for you or visibility, right. which is huge. That's the other thing that I really love about virtual tabletops. When you're doing a little dungeon crawl, it will do the fog of war for you automatically. And it creates this tension that you don't have normally at the table <laughs> because 
they're like, oh my God, I can't see you into this blackness. What could be in there? Right. I think the last thing I like about virtual tabletops, and this is how I feel about any of the content I buy. Mostly I buy modules, adventure modules and books, the published stuff. But I buy it, they give me beautiful maps, they give me beautiful art, and the content that I bought is something that I bought for all of us. You know, like I, I bought the module and like, I want to run through it, I want to explore it, and so do the players, we're going to share it together. Well, it means but, nothing if you don't share it. Right, but being being the DM means that you, by nature, get exposed to more than them. So the more I can share with the players, the better it is, both for them and the DM. And I also feel like I get more value out of the purchase because it's not just me for my own self that I see this beautiful map of the prison in which you are, it's that I can actually show you the thing and you can reference it. So the more ways that I have to do that, the better I feel about it. I agree. I think as a DM, you often forget that you are so much more immersed in your world than your players are. Totally. Because you know all these little details and all these secrets and all of these things are totally normal knowledge to you. And you forget, oh, they don't know that. And it's very easy to forget that you are inherently going to be more immersed in that world because you have more knowledge of it. And that's one of the things that you got to constantly kind of remember because there's times where you might get frustrated as a GM and you have to remind yourself, oh, yeah, they don't know this thing. So, of course, they're going to react this way. Right. I think it's worth also knowing the forum in which you're running the game, right? This affects the tools you use for a difference between one-shots or a regular game or a convention game, which is even different from just a normal one-shot, right? Because knowing the both the time that you have and also what the goal is for everybody there. Like if I'm at a convention, <clears throat> then my goal is probably to just show up and check it out, see how it is, maybe try something new, really low stakes, move on. If it's like an ongoing thing though, I've probably sunk some thought and feelings into the character and uh, it probably demands different tools. You know, I'm not going to schlep all of my stuff to a one shot at a party for somebody of mine or even at my house if I'm hosting. But if it's the regular game, you do start schlepping a lot of stuff around, you know, because it makes the game good and you want to have it there too. And now you have all your different dice because just in case you need this character that has this particular tone for your dice as opposed to just your generic DM dice that you bring along. I think that's one of the actual kind of pros and cons versus playing virtual versus not virtual is when you are playing in person, players tend to expect more props, more miniatures, more maps. And I, as a DM, love providing these little set pieces and making it fun. I have two wooden ship models from Tabletop Things for our pirate game, which I spent an obscene amount of money on, but I'm very happy with. And I don't mind doing that. But the kind of the nice thing with Roll20 is you don't have to do that. You just pop right. up the image you need and the imagination does the rest. And so, yeah, you're not schlepping things around as much. And the other thing it helps with, like you're saying, is scheduling and location. Because now you're not stuck with your local pool of players. You can reach out to anyone and everywhere. Right. And we all have been at one point, I think, in our D&D careers, unable to play because we don't have people to play with. And we know from experience that no D&D is better than bad D&D. I think that's actually true. I don't think it's like pizza or sex. It's it is like, definitely not like those things. If you're at bad D&D, it's, it's really kind of like my eyes are bleeding. And, and I really want to say like, any D&D is better than, but it's not, but it's you know? Not. It's not. It, I'd rather go play a computer game on my own than play bad D&D. I'd rather play D&D by myself than play bad D&D. Which is why I think I, at a, at a, some fundamental level, and this is where I, I just, I guess, bring it back around. I agree. Bad D&D is bad, but how do you know if it's bad or good? And it's different for every different kind of person, which is why I come back to it being a collaborative story game if it's going to be that, because the thing that makes it fun is not about the dice itself. It's not about your character itself. It's about whatever it is that the player wants that makes them smile and happy and get fulfillment out of it. And it's different for every single person. And that's one of the weaknesses of the virtual tabletop, unless you're playing with a webcam. Even then, even then, even it's then, no substitute for meat space. Well, yeah, you don't have yeah the meat space. The body language there can really convey and communicate so much. I totally. know you and I are very animated DMs who stand up and right. act things out because we're just physical people that way. And the social it allows for more natural socialization, right? You yeah. don't have a software learning curve. You don't have that guy who's like can't get his mic working, right? And you can <laughs> oh, see man. how people react in real time, right? And I think that's a huge advantage to, at least for me as a DM, when I'm trying to control the mood or the pacing, 
is something I'm always trying to get better at is reading my players because I'll often get very tunnel vision into what I'm trying to do and set up mm-hmm. when as a DM, one of the best things you can regularly do is look around the table and kind of read your players. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to do that when you're like have multiple windows you're managing on roll 20 or trying to click through different menus. But also it's a different, It's like I said earlier, it's a different forum, you know? So yeah, roll, reading your players is super critical and way easier live. But then... One of the benefits of an online game or a virtual tabletop game is that you don't have to be as on. So one of the players in the game that we have online has kids, and it makes it easy for him to play the game and do the stuff that he has to do with his kids sometimes, you know? So it it's really... He can it, step oh, away. Exactly. He can step away. He can make lunch real quick. He can answer a question for them in a way that he couldn't if he had to show up at somebody's house. And also, never mind the fact that he's 3,000 miles away. Right? Yeah. So it opens a door for him that wasn't there before. But sometimes people take that a little too far and it becomes a slippery slope oh, totally. and they're playing a video game or checking Twitter because when you're on your computer, it's right there. It's a click away. And I mean, we've all seen people do this at the table. It happens. But at least there you can see that they're doing it and you can say something or be like, hey, put your phone down or whatever. There's no way you know that's happening when you play Roll20. Right. I think that's one of the things. But on the flip side, the advantage of that is it's really easy to communicate secretly with your players. Yeah, that's true. Because at a tabletop game, if you want to have, like, tell a player a secret that only they know, you have to do one of two things. You can take them out of the room, which is kind of awkward and breaks the pacing of the game. I always hate that. I've always hated that. Or you have the other players leave and you just talk to them. I've never been a big fan of that because it kind of breaks the group cohesion and the pacing kind of winds down. Your other option, the classic option, is you can hand that player a note with, like, this is what you learn, or, like, you hand them your notepad mm-hmm. for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to do that, though, and if, like, let's say you're giving them, like, a little bit of information that they can give to the party, make sure you take the paper or the note card back before they communicate it, or they will read it verbatim off of the index card, where you probably want to be like, okay, well, how would your character communicate this in language to the rest of his totally great rest of his party members? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, this is why I stopped using as often sticky notes or why I, I will take them back. Instead, I'll use my, my journal and I'll write it a little line in there and point to it there. And then take then it back. I take it back and, and it works. And have to digest it. And, and you're like, okay, how am I going to communicate what I just learned? Because you're right. not going to read it verbatim. I think, however, these virtual tabletops have allowed for things like more streaming, more accessibility is a big topic because of them, which is great. It's, uh, it's been nice to see D&D move towards making the game more accessible in a variety of ways. What do you think about the streaming and podcasting, like live play? Live play is an interesting form of Dungeons & Dragons because, as we've talked about throughout this podcast, you can play Dungeons & Dragons in so many different ways. There is really no right or wrong way to play Dungeons & Dragons as long as everyone is having a good time. Now... Of course, there's a legion of people on the internet who will argue that your way is wrong. Ignore them. Do what you like to do. So that's a wrap for Far Realms Radio, Session 1, Episode 1, where we talk about what is D&D. Thank you for tuning in. We're really glad to have you here. Hopefully, after all our blathering today, you picked out some gems about what Dungeons & Dragons actually is. It's kind of a hard and mercurial thing to pin down. However, it really kind of comes down to your approach to the game and how you choose to play it. And it's different for everybody. So, of course, tell us how we're wrong. Tell us how we're right. Email us in the comments, whatever you'd like. And until next time. We'll see ya.